Interesting afternoon. Hope it's spirit-led development. I guess we'll see here in about an hour. Uh, so let's pray uh, to that end and then, uh, and then jump right into it. So y'all pray with me. Lord, I'm thankful for our time here on Wednesday nights where uh, we get to gather and open the Word and have fellowship with each other and worship in song. Um, I'm thankful for the, the fact that your ways are um, infinitely higher than our ways. That even if you explained everything to us completely, we, we wouldn't understand it. We don't have the capacity Yet, by the work of the Spirit, you give us understanding, you impart wisdom, you make wise the simple. So, Lord, my prayer tonight is that we would come before you humbly, aware of our simpleness, yet eager to grow in understanding and wisdom and insight and discernment. I pray that uh, the Spirit would lead us in um, growing in our understanding of your will uh, for the purpose of walking in it that we may glorify you. Lord, help us to be mindful as we study tonight and as we have conversation tonight that our entire created purpose is your glory. The reason that we have a borrowed breath and a window of time on this planet is for the purpose of putting your glory on display as image bearers. Lord, I confess that in some of the conviction I've experienced this week, I've realized I haven't, maybe I haven't been bearing your image rightly in some ways. Maybe there's been something lacking in my image bearing. If that's true for anyone else, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be challenged, not for the purpose of just getting smarter, but for the purpose of sanctification. My hope is that our time in the Word would result in a people who are being made more Christ-like. So with that, we come before you humbly, admitting and confessing that we are sinful and we are desperately needy. And it is only in Christ that we have hope, direction, and any understanding at all. Lord, you're so good. Your ways are so wonderful and high. I pray that we would enjoy you and treasure you tonight as we study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews 2. This is an Exodus study. The title will be Exodus and Dominion. Uh, this week, uh, uh, just thinking through some things, some things I've been challenged on, I feel like now and again, not all the time, it's necessary for us to stop down uh, on a Wednesday and maybe spend a little more time connecting some dots between what we're seeing in our Exodus study and our Hebrew study. Uh, it's not something that's forced. We're, we're not forced to make connections that don't really exist, but rather, as we study our word, we see that there are so many dots to connect. And there's times where it's necessary 
to really purposefully, intentionally connect those dots for the sake of worship, for the sake of the glory of our great God who is putting things before us on purpose in a timely manner. So um, the title tonight is Exodus and Dominion. And instead of moving directly back into Exodus 31, I'd like to consider our, our big picture context, particularly in relation to what we're seeing in Exodus and what we're seeing in Hebrews. Included in this is some personal pastoral testimony that I'll share along the way. So here's something I want us to consider. As we hear truth that is not the norm for us in our paradigms, is our stance and position one of humble approachability? When you consider what it is you believe, and if if you hear something that's maybe different from what you've heard growing up, from what you would say, this is my belief, when you hear those things, is your stance one of humble approachability? Do I allow my paradigms to be challenged, or do I immediately dismiss the one who would dare to do such a thing? Uh, I remember um, within the last decade having an attitude towards some theological doctrinal principles where I was just like, nah, that's ridiculous. And I'm dismissing like great timeless theologians who just happen to differ in what they believe. Um, There is some such thing as different beliefs within the same faith. Romans 14 explains that. Yet we're to be fully convinced is what we believe, which we'll talk more about in a bit. Um, But I want us to consider uh, what's our stance when we we hear things that are different. Um, And I want to consider this because uh, Hebrews 2 is really challenging me. And in fact, Hebrews 2, I would say, is even challenging my understanding of Exodus. And that's why we're, we're taking a little time to look at it tonight. Um, just, just for the sake of, of, uh, of uh, interaction, has anyone else been challenged by Hebrews 2 at all? Fantastic. That's good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Turn to Hebrews 2. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18. And then we're going to go back to Exodus at some point. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that help that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which we know from Romans to be children of the promise, not just children of the flesh, those who are in Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, Ben mentioned on Sunday that paradigms don't come down easy. Would anyone agree with that? I would. I agree with that. Uh, Paradigms do not uh, come down easy. Sometimes we don't even know the paradigms that shape our lives. Uh, they can be so ingrained in our thinking and in our movement that it just, that's what's natural. What's natural and right just kind of comes out. That, that can be something that's formed by, by our paradigms and our thinking. We have systems of thought that form our decisions about what is right and what is wrong, what is faithful and what is unfaithful, what is good and bad what we deserve and what we don't deserve. 
and so on and so forth. We have these systems of thought that form those things. And I had a few conversations this week with uh, people that I um, particularly loved ones that I disagreed with uh, on, on their perspectives. And it was interesting because just the conversation itself gave me some insight into how strong paradigms can be. Um, I have a loved one who struggles with racism. Uh, we've, uh, my wife and I have gone through the foster adopt process, and it's, it's likely uh, that we could someday uh, adopt an African-American child. It's very likely. And we had a loved one say, why would you adopt? And they decided to use the N-word. Pretty shocking. And I thought, well, that's just deep-seated racism. What in the world? You know, your, your initial response is, you know, how dare you, you arrogant fool. Get out of my house. You're no longer welcome here. I hate you, which isn't very uh, charitable. Um, and what I realized was that the loved one that I was talking to grew up in a time where they can remember not long ago when it was just wrong to even drink out of the same water fountain as someone who was of a different color. It was just wrong. That, that was the life they grew up in. It was wrong to, to, to move together, to live together, to, for, for people of different colors to marry. It was wrong to even share a water fountain. And it was just wrong. That's just what they knew. And that was, that was how their thinking developed. And so the question they were asking me was actually a pretty sincere question. But if I don't understand how deep-seated that paradigm is, I will be found completely and totally lacking in patience towards that person. I had another conversation with another loved one. Um, we'll call her Grandma. And uh, she is uh, undoubtedly the uh, most financially well-off person in our family. My grandfather, while alive, was a very successful businessman and did well. And no one drives us more crazy about the fear of losing money than this person we'll call Grandma. And uh, it's interesting because it's one of those good night. You're set up to just enjoy your life. And granddad worked hard while he was alive. And why are you so worried about your this fear of losing money? And then when I talk to her, I realize she grew up during the Great Depression. She saw it all go away. And so here we are decades later. And she struggles with this fear because of this deep-seated paradigm of thinking in her head that says, I have to worry. If I don't worry, it might go away. And by worrying, somehow I can hold on to it. I'm not saying that racism is right. I'm not saying materialism or reverse materialism or fear of losing what's material is right. Um, but I am saying that when you look closely, you see these years of, of thinking. that are it's, They're hard paradigms to break down. Something more recent. Um, my wife and I uh, recently for 40 days decided to go without, um, I, w I went without sweets and she went without Dr. Pepper. I know, it sounds crazy. It wasn't so much for the sake of Lent as much as it was just for the sake of personal discipline. Uh, we rarely say no to things that we want, so it's a good exercise sometimes. And so uh, here comes Easter, which happened to be the 40-day mark. Um, like I said, it's more personal discipline. Don't, don't judge me with your paradigms. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it, 
here we are, and I'm like, well, are we going to party? I mean, we get a 12-pack of Dr. Pepper and some cupcakes? What are we going to do? And it was funny because we sat down, and here we are. We've got the freedom to have a Dr. Pepper and freedom to have... Well, I just saw you. You're, she's right here. It's weird. It's like you... Um, and so it's like, um, all right, we got the freedom to do that. But then it's like, well, it feels, it feels kind of dirty. It feels a little wrong. I mean, this, this, this cupcake is very sweet. At Dr. Pepper, it's not a diet drink. It's, it's a Dr. Pepper, and they'll make you crazy. And, and it's, it was 40 days. You see what I'm saying? Like that paradigm had only been shaped very briefly, 40 days, and all of a sudden, it feels wrong. It just feels wrong. I can't really explain it. It's just wrong. And within the hour, you know, you have a cupcake and drink Dr. Pepper. But, but at first, it was wrong, and I thought how funny it was that only in a short period of time that that paradigm, that thinking had changed to where something that was the norm, very much the enjoyable norm, became wrong, just because it wasn't a part of our lives. Why do I say all this? I share these examples with you to encourage you to be patient with others and to lead you to consider some of the paradigms that shape your thinking. How has your perspective been shaped even from your childhood? How has your view of the world and the kingdom of God been shaped? What have you been taught throughout the years? And most importantly, is it biblical? So here's a question that I want to ask that I'd like to hear some answers from. Do any of you have an example of a belief that you held for a duration of your life that was undone and exposed as wrong by the word that you're willing to share. No one will judge you. They're not allowed to now. That's a big one for, I think, a lot of us. I know I've experienced that. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
That's a big one. Uh, uh, it wouldn't be respectful to say I'm earning it, but I, I want everyone to know I'm really trying. I'm really doing my part. Yeah. What else? That's crazy talk. I know. <laughs> and, and it's so, good. You know, I can remember not doing something in certain churches because, mm. you know, it's a deal breaker on some, something. And, yeah. and I, I look back now and go, oh, you know. Yeah. If not for the fact that you, know, you talk about those denominational lines, per se, it's the gospel. Yeah. That's what we're saying. That's what we're centered on. You know, that's not even a thought process. You love that person because who they are and you're loving their heart. Yeah. That's probably been one of the sweetest things for me as an adult. Yeah. For that to be broken down in, in a way it should be. Yeah. That's good. Hey, you wonder how able we are to cross racial lines if we can't even cross denominational lines sometimes. It's concerning. It's good. What else? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are tough paradigms to, to engage in a new way when it's been what you've always thought. Are there any others? Think about that moment when each of those things were sort of beginning to be broken down. It was probably offensive. Like, you're called to shepherd your kids, not the church. Well, excuse me? Uh, what do we pay you for? Um, 
you don't go to church. You are the church. Well, excuse me for going to church, you know. Um, when you start talking about workspace thing, you start talking about reform theology, usually that, that first engagement of something that's different from what your paradigm has been is, is offensive in some manner. Uh, one of mine used to be, uh, I used to wear my anxiety as a sort of a badge of honor where my thinking was, well, the problem was, the, pro- the problem was, and then the thinking behind it was, um, I talked too much about what I was anxious about. That was the problem. I always felt it necessary to, oh, I'm very anxious about this. I'm very anxious about that. How are you doing, Scott? Well, I'm very, very anxious about this. And what I thought was that if people saw my anxiety in relation to things, um, particularly kingdom movement and ministry, then they would know that I took it seriously. So it would be honorable. He's an anxious person. Clearly, there's honor in that. He must be taking seriously his role as a minister. That was really my thinking. And then some rude person um, said, oh, yeah, anxiety is a form of pride. He's like, well, you're an idiot. What about that? And, uh, and then they open up to Philippians. It says, humble yourselves. Do not be anxious about anything, but humble yourselves before the Lord. I was like, so anxiety is being opposed to humility. So it's pride. So you're telling me anxiety is a form of pride because I'm not humbling myself for the Lord. And then I'm like anxious about my pride. And then we had to work through that. Um, (laughs) But I I just remember how offended I was when someone said anxiety is a form of pride. That's not honorable. And I was like, man, I'm really trying to be, you know, for real about all this stuff. Um, Another one, I, I remember the first time I had heard about reformed theology and anything of the sort. And I remember someone shared that, you know, God is sovereign and he's, he's not necessarily waiting on us for things. He's moving according to his purpose and his will. And I said, no, not my God. My God would never do such a thing. And then they showed me some verses in the Bible that's breathed out by God. And I said, not my God. I don't think. And then it progressed, and I realized when I was saying not my God, I was actually talking about an idol, a God in the form of what I wanted him to be, according to the principles I thought best. And that was very convicting. So paradigms don't, don't come down easily by any stretch. One thing I want for us to see tonight is that a paradigm shift doesn't have to be to a new paradigm. A paradigm shift doesn't have to be to a new paradigm. When your thinking is challenged, it doesn't mean that, oh, I must be wrong, so I need to embrace someone else's thought completely. It doesn't have to be a shift to a new paradigm necessarily. Ideally, we're being rounded out to have a more complete and robust biblical worldview. But that can't happen if we're rigid and judgmental and unteachable. Now, I do want to make it clear. Romans 14 says that we're to be fully convinced as to what we believe. So rest assured, I'm not talking about being wishy-washy. Ephesians warns against being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. I'm not talking about being wishy-washy. But we're to be fully convinced yet always teachable. And the reason for that is humility is never optional. The person who says, I'm fully convinced as to what I believe is good. That's a good stance. But to say, and there's no possibility that I could ever be wrong, is arrogance. So... We have to always be teachable in that. It's, I'm fully convinced as to what this believes, but aware of the fact that I'm common and I'm fragile and I'm clay and, I, and, I'm, and I'm 
possibly wrong. That's okay. So I want us to consider our stance, consider how we stand when we hear things that differ from what we've always grown up hearing. Because one thing that I've observed in this culture, particularly in Hunt County, is a problem with flexibility and things and being challenged and from what you may have grown up in. Um, there's a whole lot through the years. I've heard a lot of, that's the way my daddy did it, that's the way my granddaddy did it, that's the way I'm going to do it, period. I don't care what you say. And it's almost like you're, you're more traditional than even biblical in, in some senses if we're not willing to be changed and formed by the Bible. Humility is never optional. As I listened to Sunday's sermon, I found myself getting frustrated. Um, this is, I want y'all to hear that a pastor, consider, I, I talked to Ben about this. I told him, I was like, man, there was one point in that sermon, you were, you were this close to catching my shoe. I just, I was really, I wasn't sure what you were doing, and I was confused, and it was weird. Um, but, uh, and we laughed about it. It's all good. Um, but I, I found myself getting frustrated, and really my reason for being frustrated um, was that the verses being shared and exposed weren't really fitting into my paradigm that I've grown up with. And it was, it was kind of freaking me out, to be honest. I was like, oh, what do I do with that? Ooh, that's a little bit different. And in the middle of the sermon, I actually wrote in my notes, am I okay with my paradigms being soberly and biblically challenged? Am I okay with my paradigms being soberly and biblically challenged? Now, we would all prefer the person challenging our paradigms to always be respectful, never rude, never abrasive. Sometimes the word feels that way, where it's like, ooh, that was sharp. As I prayed afterwards, I wrote this entry into my journal. This is what I wrote. And I don't like sharing journal entries because it always sounds really nerdy and want to be artsy. Like, well, I was journaling on a hillside after I painted and uh, wrote a song. Um, so it always feels odd. Uh, but um, it was a prayer. So I'll just say this is what I prayed. Uh, I was, good night. I've spent most of my life having little understanding in the way of strength, power, perseverance, and dominion. But Hebrews 2 is giving me a renewed sense of gospel expectation while diminishing what has always seemed like an inevitable futility and pessimism in ministry. What I'm talking about there is that feeling like, oh, Lord, I will spend and be spent gladly on the souls of your children, but for the most part, they're not going to care. I will work for the forward movement of the kingdom, but the way is narrow. Most people are going to just kind of forget what we say. There, there's this unnerving sense of futility sometimes that enters into the Christian walk. And Hebrews 2 has helped me with that. Helped me to say, maybe there's some more dominion and power and strength here than I, than I knew of. Um, maybe I'm missing something. And, uh, and I continued in the prayer and said, I, I need to ask your forgiveness for apparently expecting too little of the gospel. Too little right now of what Christ accomplished on the cross. I still eagerly anticipate your return, and I still eagerly anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I still eagerly anticipate the dwelling in your presence fully without sin. My prayer is that you would give me a spirit-led balance between laying up treasure in heaven and exercising dominion joyfully now. I need this balance personally and pastorally. So we have this biblical dynamic that we talked about a little bit on Sunday about the already and the not yet. We have a biblical dynamic of the already and the not yet. 
And what I've prayed for is balance. So I want to ask the question, what if we become too consumed with the already? What if we become too consumed with the already? Health, wealth. Why is that? How could being too consumed with the already lead to health, wealth thinking? Yeah. Yeah, that's taking it too far. What else could it mean? What else could develop in that? What are some dynamics that would come in the thinking of being too consumed with the already? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I've heard many people say, hey, we're only here for a short time. Might as well live it up and get as much as we possibly can. He who dies with the most toes in the ends wins. So, um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a pretty normal way of thinking. Not biblical, but pretty common. What are some other things that can happen when we are too consumed with the already? Yeah. How's that work? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when Tuesday punches you in the face and you're like, what happened? I thought I was walking in perfect dominion right now and things were below me because I was above them and I just got smacked. What happens now? Or real stuff comes about in your life. Pain, suffering, persecution, danger, um, heartache, loss. Those things are still real factors of life. So if we are focused too much on the already, when the already doesn't go as planned, um, that's exactly right. It, um, there's some days that'll, that'll not make any sense to us at all. Okay, what happens if we become too consumed with the not yet? What else? Too consumed with the not yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that leads to pessimism. Maybe negativity. What did it do for the Hebrew church? They got dull of hearing. And what, what did that being dull of hearing cause them to do? They neglected their salvation. How did that play out? Dull of hearing, neglecting salvation, and what did that lead to? Yeah, yeah, huddling together. Um, sometimes, uh, especially those who believe uh, in, uh, in uh, doctrines of grace and Reformed theology, we're, we're accused of, um, of lacking any interest in evangelism. And some of those accusations are true. 
we say, well, God's sovereign. He's going to save you. He's going to save. What's the point in losing a Saturday morning, Pat, and, you know, going out and talking to people? What's the point in putting myself out there when I'll probably get rejected? He'll save him if he wants to. That's not biblical thinking, but it can be an effect of becoming too consumed with the not yet. We can lose, in becoming too consumed with either of those things, we can lose sight of what the glorious gospel and what Christ in his might and in his beauty and in his glory has accomplished in each of them, because he's accomplished much. This is where I'd like to look at Exodus in a minute. Turn to Exodus 2. Verse During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Why is Israel in Egypt? God sent them into slavery. Well, why in the world? How did that happen? How did that develop? When they originally went to Egypt, what did that look like? Yeah, what was it, like 71 of them, something like that? small little clan, and and they went there because of who? Joseph, that's right. And when they got there, where did they get to stay? The land of what? Goshen. And Goshen was a picture of what? Protection, shelter. When all the plagues came, all the livestock everywhere other than Goshen died. Uh, The hail fell everywhere and crushed everything except for in Goshen. So it was a picture of protection and and actually blessing And there was this thing where the Egyptians thought that uh, shepherds were an abomination. So Christ, the good shepherd, the wonderful, mighty, wise God, uh, calls out his people Israel and calls them to shepherd. And the Egyptians see that as an abomination. And this built-in thing is, hey, we're safe in Goshen. The Egyptians don't even care about this place because we're here. It was interesting. And they were really blessed. They were taken care of. Uh, because Joseph had favor with the Pharaoh uh, because of his ability to help them through the the very hard times that were um, going on in the country at the time. So, they're in Egypt because of Joseph, protection from the plague, and they're there because of blessing. Now, why are they now suffering? They're crying out in these verses. God, we're groaning. Slavery is hard. Why are they in that slavery? Why are they suffering? Yeah, so that God can reveal himself to a nation. But even before that, I mean, that's going to be the ultimate purpose. But why, why did it get this way? How did it go from we're blessed in Goshen because Joseph is awesome to crying out to God just a few verses later? Yeah, yes, they were multiplying exponentially, taking seriously the call to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Sand, stars. Now, why were they able to do such a thing? Because of God's blessing. So they're suffering because of what? 
God's blessing. Okay. For most of Israel, their experience in life at this point, now now we're in chapter 30 of Exodus, so, so we've seen how it played out, but up until this point, most of Israel have lived a life that has gone from bad to worse. They have uh, never experienced improvement, much less dominion. At, at the point before God redeems them, they've never experienced improvement in life. Most of them were born into a poor quality of life. That got worse. It was oppressive, and it got more oppressive. It was difficult, and it got more difficult. And they were groaning and crying out to God. So most of their experiences, Israel, the people of God, drawn out a nation of his name, only knew life that was going from bad to worse. But what was about to happen for Israel? It's not a trick question. Very obvious. Yeah, they were being freed. They were being freed from slavery. The Exodus, hence title of book, is about to happen. Exodus. How will life after the Exodus differ for Israel from their life before? How is Exodus 2.23 different than after they leave Exodus? They're not slaves anymore. Big one. What does that mean? They're not going to experience what? The hard labor, beatings, making bricks without straw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's going to need to be maybe some boldness and trust as they step out. How else is it going to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so there's going to be sort of, a, sort of a turning point where this thing they've always experienced where life is just going from bad to worse. And now, whoa, we're free. We've got water from a rock. He's leading the way and covering our rear. And there's all these positive things happening. It's good and it's moving. Um, so here's my question. How does Exodus compare to our freedom in Christ? How does the Exodus compare to our freedom in Christ? Yeah, we're not slaves to sin anymore. How else? Yep. Yep. Yeah, we're sealed with the Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah, we went from being sons of disobedience like all others to heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. Turn to 1 John 3, 8. 
And we're going to move quickly through these verses. So, 1 John 3.8 says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. If you have a sin problem in your life, which all of us do, and we just can't shake it, I find this to be a very helpful verse. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, how does this explain our freedom in Christ? Yes, there's freedom to stop sinning. What's been destroyed? The works of the devil. That's right. Turn to John 12, 31. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. How does this explain our freedom in Christ? A new ruler has taken reign. Turn to Colossians 1. Verse 18. Whoa, it says 18 through 13 on my notes. I don't think that's right. <laughs> and together hold things, all him. And, and uh, so verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that, and pay close attention here, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. How does this explain our freedom in Christ? Reconciliation, peace, holiness, blamelessness, above reproach, stable, steady, steadfast in this life. It's not just a not yet. There's a factor of already in this. But look at verses 24 through 29. There's encouragement there, right? I mean, stability, steadfastness, uh, reconciliation, peace, holiness, blamelessness in this life. That's encouraging, right? I want to make sure we're encouraged by that. We're all encouraged by that, right? Fantastic. Look at verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, in, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So what about momentary affliction and daily death? Those are factors too. Momentary affliction and daily death. Turn to John 12. Momentary affliction and daily death. For those who walk in bold dominion with the holy swagger here on earth. It all goes together. John 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. How do these verses define a fruitful and eternal life? Daily death. How else do they define a fruitful and eternal life? Yeah, yeah. The, the fruitful and eternal life definition is dying, because um, in dying you bear much fruit. Uh, losing and hating life in this world, because that's how you keep eternal life. And the eternal life we're talking about here, because of the already and not yet factor that's been made clear, is not something we're, that's later. Eternal life is now. It's beginning now. You are an eternal people uh, made as eternal beings. So what does it mean to fill up the afflictions of Christ? Uh, Piper wrote a whole book on it, so I'm going to share a a, a quote. Filling up the afflictions of Christ. Remember, bold dominion. Walking in bold dominion. But I want us to have a sober perspective of what this is and allow our paradigms to be challenged. So suffering was not just a consequence of the master's obedience and mission. It was the central strategy of his mission. So he's making clear that to fill up the afflictions of Christ is not to say that if you follow Christ, one of the consequences is you might be treated badly. But he's saying that was actually part of the strategy, not just a consequence. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted in the world. 
what that says is you're not filling up the afflictions of Christ in that he did like most of the work, but we're going to finish it. It's a matter of the entire earth does not understand the treasure in the afflictions of Christ. And as we live that out and do what he did, namely dying daily and suffering for undeserving sinners, that, that's how you, the forward movement of the gospel happens. You have bold dominion that you may die daily and suffer for undeserving sinners just like Jesus did so that you're filling up the afflictions of Christ, that, that what he experienced in his affliction is treasured in the entire earth. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted in the world. These afflictions and what they mean are still hidden to most peoples. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed to all the nations. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by missionaries, by believers, by Christians who love and trust God and walk in that bold dominion rightly, not with wrong expectation, but with sober expectation. And those missionaries and Christians and believers complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. So bold dominion, while encouraging and frankly invigorating, I feel like I've had a fire lit under me for ministry in what I've read in Hebrews 2. Bold dominion, while invigorating and encouraging, does not aim at ease. It does not aim at ease. We don't say, well... I'm going to exercise this bold dominion and get a little more comfort up in this world while I'm here. That's not the aim. That's not the purpose. Turn to Matthew 10. I would go to Exodus 14, but Ben's going there Sunday, and he said I'm not allowed to steal his thunder. Matthew 10, 16 says this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Just to be clear, what usually happens to sheep in the midst of wolves? They die. And how? Just, I mean, I don't want to get too graphic, but how does that normally happen? They're torn apart by the wolves. Now look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. I'm, I hope that we've accomplished two things tonight. The two things that I hope we can, we've accomplished tonight is, one, a willingness to have our paradigms continually challenged. We are being sanctified. It is a process. We are being made more Christ-like. There is no time where any of the believers in this room can say, I am Christ-like. Be careful what you challenge me with. That's, that's not a reality for Christians. We're being made more Christ-like. It's a process. And no one before the end of their life on earth will be able to say, I got it. So we always have to have a willingness to have our paradigms continually challenged. There are beautiful truths to be heard in Hebrews 2 and the coming chapters in Hebrews. But we may not be able to receive and hear all of it unless we're, we're okay with some of our paradigms and our norms and our even deep-seated thoughts that maybe go all the way back to our childhood if we're not okay with those things being challenged. And the second thing I hope we can, we've accomplished tonight is really sobriety as to the purpose of bold dominion. We will not step headlong into health, wealth, prosperity, bunk. 
Because we know that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. We'll love people the way Christ loved people. Husbands will love their wives the way Christ loves the church. It's daily. I want to close in praying through Psalm 119. Not the whole thing. We won't. You might be thinking, oh man, we're going to be here until 8 o'clock. Um, just a few verses. You can turn there and pray with me uh, if you'd like. Not out loud. That might be weird. Um, I'm going to start in 129 and close us in prayer. Lord, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Lord, I pray that each of us would soberly ask, do I mourn over such things? Do I pant in that way? Is my expectation of what will be accomplished in our short time on earth even close to that? Lord, help us to see our feeble nature, yet help us to realize soberly the purpose of bold dominion. For me, for most of my life, I have not walked in that kind of power and strength and dominion. And I confess that in front of everybody tonight. But Lord, I ask that you would equip us to walk in it rightly. And that it wouldn't result in something worldly and carnal and fleshly. As it continues to say in Colossians, we're, we're called to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. So I pray that you would keep us from allowing bold dominion to become materialistic. Keep us from allowing bold dominion from becoming worldly and fleshly. But allow us to walk in it soberly for the forward movement of the kingdom, filling up the afflictions of Christ for the glory of our great God as we walk in obedience. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.